the Christmas story. Bow your heads with me. Father, thanks so much. Thanks for Christmas, God. Thanks uh, that you came near and you, uh, you put on flesh and, and dwelt among us. God, I pray. Have you ever had plans go just terribly, terribly wrong? It's just so frustrating when that happens. Maybe, maybe the vacation that you had hoped for fell through, the, the plane flights were canceled or something like that. Maybe you got laid off either right before or, or maybe worse, right after uh, you, you bought the dream house. And you're like, what are we going to do now? And it's just this, this stomach-clenching feeling. Have you ever had something like that? Maybe, maybe just the last couple of weeks, Toys R Us ran out of the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, and that was the one thing on the Christmas list. You're like, what are we going to do now? Big or small, it's hard to trust God is really good, or even in control, when, when things don't go well. That's just a reality in my life. I would expect it's a reality in your life. And I think it was probably a reality in Mary's life. If you would, turn with me. We're going to look at and examine how Mary felt in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You guys are familiar with this because you've watched the Peanuts Christmas, but it is such a fantastic passage. Again, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. I thought about this passage a lot this week. I wonder how much our perspective on Luke chapter 2 differs from Mary's perspective on Luke chapter 2. To us, it's, it's about a bunch of warm feelings. It, it, it kind of personifies or, or gives flesh to the, the Christmas story, and that, that's associated so well with, with so many of our really fond memories. But I wonder if that's what it was like for Mary. I wonder if she had the perspective that we have on Luke chapter 2. Now, Mary had been briefed. Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to her and, and tells her straight up that she'd give birth to a king whose reign would never end. Imagine being a teenage girl and being approached, first of all, by an angel in all the glory that an angel possesses, and then the angel gives you such incredible news. You're going to be the mother of a child who will grow up to be a king, and his reign will never end. That's got to be really good news. I bet Mary, at the end of Luke chapter 1, was pretty excited. It's got to be a lot of fun for a teenage girl. I, and I'm just guessing here, but I don't think Gabriel told her she'd have to ride a donkey the 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem while nine months pregnant. I think he left that out. <laughs> I, I really do. Furthermore, 
I don't think Gabriel told her that all of Bethlehem's inns would have no vacancy signs. I, I just don't know that he got to that detail. Luke chapter 1 certainly doesn't mention it. I bet that was quite a surprise to Mary, who's nine months pregnant and has no place to stay. I would further bet you, just I'm guessing here, but I don't think that Gabriel told Mary that she'd give birth to this little king that he spoke of in a stinky old stable. I just bet he left all that out. So can you imagine what Mary must have gone through going from the high of of Luke chapter 1 to all of a sudden Luke chapter 2 and nothing seems to be working out, right? Hey, I'm going to have a king. But it's going to take, let's call it at a minimum four days on a donkey, probably because she's pregnant, up to seven or eight days. They might have even had to have skirted Samaria because no Samaritan was going to give them any help, at which point it could be up to two weeks' journey. That's got to be frustrating. That's got to be difficult for a woman who's nine months pregnant. If I was Mary, I would, in those circumstances, be be tempted to question whether God really was in control. He said, I'm going to have a king, but this doesn't feel like I'm having a king. It feels like I'm a refugee. It, It feels like Braxton Hicks contractions. It, it feels anything but glorious. A stable? Really, Lord? That, that's what you've brought me here to? A stable? It's got to be really, really challenging. It's much easier, you see, for us to make sense out of Mary's circumstances from our 2,000-year-later vantage point, isn't it? I mean, we look at this thing, and we're like, of course that's the Lord's will. But I don't know that Mary had the advantage of 2,000 years of teaching on this. See, we we know a lot about Luke chapter 2. We know that Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. See, because of Micah, we've known all along that the newborn from ancient of times, which doesn't really make sense unless you're God, by the way, but the newborn from ancient times, we knew he had to come from Bethlehem. So, so Mary and Joseph jumping on a mule and going, or a donkey and going 80 miles, that makes total sense to us. I bet it was a real stressor for Mary, maybe even a real stressor for Joseph. We we can marvel at God for putting in Caesar Augustus's mind the idea that it would be a great idea to have an empire-wide census so as to get two obscure young people, Mary and Joseph, from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. We, we go, wow, God is a sovereign God. He is in control of everything. He controls the kings. And by his control of the kings, he controls the people that nobody's ever heard of until Luke chapter 1. We, we can marvel at God's sovereignty. Sovereignty from our perspective, right? 
2,000 years later, it's easy to see sovereignty. But I wonder if Mary was wondering at God's sovereignty in the 80 miles on the mule. Or is she wondering about contractions? And is she wondering, oh Lord, are we going to make it to Bethlehem? I don't think she's probably thinking a whole lot about theology. I think other than the theology of pain, maybe. But it's ours to marvel at. It's easy for us to see sovereignty in other people's pain. We see the no vacancy signs in Bethlehem, and we think to ourselves, you know, that's just like God. We, we've read before, perhaps, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And we say, of course, a stable. That's the way of God. He forsook the glories and the riches of heaven. He took on flesh. He was born in the most lowly of circumstances. All of this is to demonstrate his love for us that by his forsaking of wealth to become poor, we might as impoverished people spiritually, mentally, and all other ways become rich in knowing God. How how fantastic is this God? How consistently fantastic is God? No, No vacancy. We've got a reason. We've got an answer for that. Jesus could have been born rich. He could have. He could have turned stone into bread when he was so hungry in the desert. He could have called a legion of angels down to protect him in the garden when he was betrayed. He could have gotten down off that cross at Calvary. He could have. He could have done all this. He didn't even have to get up on the cross, truth be told. He could have done any of that. It just wasn't his will. And so he didn't. He became poor. Poor. For us. That's the reality. The circumstances of the Incarnation should remind us to wonder at God's sovereign goodness. 2,000 years later, it should remind us to wonder at God's sovereign goodness. Even when our circumstances are difficult, right? We, we should be able to learn something from Mary. Mary, we would guess, struggled to understand that God was sovereign, even as the angel Gabriel had told her she was going to have a king. We can learn from Mary. And we can trust that God is sovereign and sovereignly good, even in the midst of our difficult circumstances. We should always ask, taking the example of Mary, I wonder what God is doing. I wonder what God is trying to show me. Even in the midst of our difficulties. In the incarnation, Jesus is showing us the extent of his sacrificial Love. That's why he's born poor. You might say to yourself, wait a second, West, that, that doesn't make any sense. You're talking about sacrificial love. Sacrificial love is about Good Friday. You, you've got your two major holidays confused. This isn't about sacrificial love, it's about the incarnation. 
Good Friday is all about sacrificial love. There's no denying that. I'd like to submit to you today that the incarnation is all about sacrificial love. All about sacrificial love. Everything that Jesus did was about sacrificial love. Everything Jesus experienced when he took on flesh was sacrificial. When, When he forsook the robes of glory in heaven and put on the robes of flesh, when he submitted himself to the persecution of religious leaders, poverty, being a nobody for 30 years, let me tell you, friends, it's all sacrificial. It was a wealthy deity becoming a poor man. Celebrate Christmas. Celebrate it from the depths of your soul because Jesus gave up heaven. He gave up nobility. He gave up honor. He gave up comfort. He gave up glory. He even gave up omniscience so that he could live with us and ultimately die for us. And all of this was to show us just how much he loved us. It's been 15 years ago, but I'll never forget it. We went on a mission trip to Quito, Ecuador, and we were working with an orphanage there, and it was a fantastic experience. But one day, we, we took a visit out to the city dump outside of Quito. And, and as we were out at the dump, you've never seen such poverty. I, I've been to Africa, to the Middle East, all over South America, Central America. I've never seen poverty like the dump in Quito, Ecuador. People living in the dump. Their, their houses were literally cardboard shanties. There's no wood in them. Just boxes folded over. Families living under one box all together. It, it was stunning how impoverished these people were. But the most stunning thing of all at the dump in Quito, Ecuador, was when as we were walking through it, just overwhelmed by the poverty, we heard some people speaking English, and we turn over, and they go, hey, how you doing? And these guys look like everybody else, but they're speaking English with no accent, and and we're like, fine. (laughs) And they go on to tell us that they're from the Midwest. I think it was Cleveland. And they're missionaries. And they're living in the dump. They don't live outside the dump and commute in every day and go home to shower. They're living in the dump. And their house is a shanty made of cardboard. And all I could think about the rest of this trip is what would cause... Americans, to give up all the comforts that Americans have, to go and live in a dump in Quito, Ecuador? Their answer was, we just want to demonstrate the love of Christ to the people who live in this dump. And we thought that was the best way to do it. my head wanted to spin all the way around. 
it was hard to take it in. They gave up so many comforts to love the keto dump people well. You realize, of course, that God gave up infinitely more to be born a human. And then you pile on to that in a stable and with the prospect of certain rejection to come. And that's not there to make you feel guilty. That's there to make you feel adored. He knew it would happen. And he said, the redeemed I have in mind, they're worth it. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you're great. We love you. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for this wonderful, robust expression of love. Father, there is no greater love than you showed through the work of your Son. Thank you that he came and took on flesh. Thank you that he came and took on flesh that he could live with us. Thank you that he lived with us so that he could die for us. Father, I pray with all the busyness, with all the other presence that we will encounter in these next two days, that that all of them would, would just be a little picture of the greatest present that you gave, your son Jesus, to make us new, to make us whole, to make us know what love is. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.